there will be a bald Jesse Barriga walking around. So we're going to shave. Great. I think we should shave his head right now. Oh. Anybody think? Let's get it. <laughs> okay, Josh. Okay. I'm not sure that those little things are going to work. Have you seen this mop of hair? It's quite a, oh, yeah, that's I've, a lot. That's I've got a, a different lot. idea. I've got a different idea. Hold on. I, I think this could do it. That's a lot of hair, though. That is. Yeah, we're going to do half. First service, second service. I've got a better idea since those what? won't work. Oh. Uh, oh, 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 Yes. I don't I think so, it. Andy. <laughs> okay. That was a little uh, laughter for everybody who was committed enough to come out the day after Christmas. And if you didn't catch that, Josh said, I don't think so, Andy. <clears throat> Anybody who grew up in the 90s, uh, home improvement. We wanted to do a, a, funny, a funny announcement today before the sermon because the, the topic of the sermon isn't really funny. Um, in fact, it's rather heavy. And so um, anyway, uh, we just wanted to laugh a little bit and get our, get our laughs out. If you'll find Matthew chapter 5, we are going to continue in our series through the Beatitudes. Actually, we're concluding the series today. It's the last beatitude on the list, but we have been reading through this, and so I would invite you to stand up, and let's read through all of the beatitudes together out loud. Uh, You can follow along in your Bible. We'll be reading out of the ESV, which will be up on the screen. Um, If you have the ESV there in front of you, that's great. Otherwise, uh, just copy on the screen or say it out loud in your translation. That'd be great, too. Uh, (laughs) Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Thanks for reading that out loud with me. That last one is about persecution according to Open Doors, which is a, a Christian ministry that works with persecuted Christians around the world and tracks that. Um... They say that today, one out of eight Christians living today lives under the threat of persecution, lives under active persecution. One out of eight. So there are eight Beatitudes. The eighth one is blessed are those who are persecuted. And one out of eight Christians today lives in a place where they are actively persecuted for their faith. Matthew 5, 10, and 11 is our beatitude today, and this is interestingly the only beatitude on the list that gets a double 
whammy. <laughs> a double blessing. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says it again and applies it directly to the apostles and to his disciples. He, he's making the point here that, look, I'm not talking about in theory some random Christians way over across the ocean somewhere. No, I, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. It's the only beatitude in the list that gets a double saying. It's an important one, and it's the one that we're concluding with. It's the, the last one on the list. But I just the question that I really have, we're going to ask two questions today. The first question I have is this, why? Why would Jesus say blessed are those who are persecuted? Why would we expect persecution if we're following Jesus? Why should we anticipate resistance if we are serving God? I mean, I've accepted Christ. I've turned away from my sin. I'm following Jesus. I'm doing all the things that God wants me to do. So why should I have to be persecuted? Why should I have to face resistance? What is the point of following God if I'm going to just follow him right into persecution? That's the first question for the morning. The second one will be how do we respond when we suffer for Christ? But first one, why? Why should we expect persecution? And really the answer to that is this. We expect persecution as we follow Jesus because we are living right side up in an upside down world. We should anticipate there would be resistance to the way of Jesus because it is a totally different way of life that comes into direct conflict with the values and the ways of the world. Bo said it just a few weeks ago, the first time you read through the Beatitudes, you feel like Jesus is turning the world upside down. And then you read through them again and you realize, nope, the world is already upside down. Jesus is turning it right side up. This is what life is supposed to be. This is what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to do. But when you're living right side up in an upside down world, you can expect a pretty fierce resistance. I have this quote from uh, New Testament scholar John Stott. And by the way, a lot of the content from my sermon today comes from his really good commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so I just want to give credit to that. But this is a longer quote. I didn't put it up on the screen, but it's, it's worth uh, hanging with me through the quote. John Stott says this, Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. The Beatitudes paint a portrait of Christian disciples. And you can follow along in the Beatitudes as he kind of walks through these things. Uh, we see the Christian disciples first alone on their knees before God, acknowledging their spiritual poverty and mourning over it. This makes them meek or gentle in all their relationships, for they confess themselves to be guilty before God. Yet, they are far from acquiescing in their sinfulness for they hunger and thirst after righteousness, longing to grow in grace and goodness. We see the Christian disciples next with others out in the community. Their relationship with God does not cause them to withdraw from society, nor are they insulated from the world's pain. On the contrary, they are in the thick of it, showing mercy to those battered by adversity and sin. They are transparently sincere, pure in heart, in all their dealings and seek to play a constructive role as peacemakers. Yet they are not thanked for their efforts, but rather opposed, slandered, insulted, and persecuted 
on account of the righteousness for which they stand and the Christ with whom they are, are identified. Such is the man or woman who is blessed, that is, who has the approval of God and finds fulfillment as a human being. You look through the Beatitudes and they present a different way of being human. These aren't just little Christian cliches. These aren't just great little things to put on coffee cups and put in our cabinets. These aren't just verses to put on uh, Christian calendars with beaches behind them. No, this is a new way of being human. And when you are human in a new way, you're going to face resistance. It's uh, the opening uh, scenes, the credit, opening credit scenes of The Chosen shows the fish that turn a different color and start swimming against all the other fish. That's the perfect picture of what Jesus was doing and teaching here. We're swimming upstream. We're swimming against the current. We're swimming against the flow. And this value system of Christ comes into direct conflict with the value system of the world. Two irreconcilable value systems. See, the world judges the rich to be blessed, not the poor. You're not blessed if you're poor. You're blessed if you're rich. The world says that the good life is found in self-indulgence, not in taking evil so seriously that you mourn over it. The world says uh, we're going to idolize those who are strong and people who dominate others. We'll put them up on pedestals. We'll scorn the meek and the gentle and the merciful and the peacemakers. We'll laugh at them as weak. The world tells you to take what you want even if you have to compromise your integrity to get it. Just don't get caught. You're only guilty if you get caught. The world turns its nose up at do-gooders who seek to be pure in heart, even if it costs them. The world tells you you're blessed if you're popular, if you're part of the in crowd, if you're accepted by the culture around you, not if you suffer persecution. That's a sign of being cursed. The world is walking a totally different path. It's not like all of us are just on the same path through life and some of us love Jesus and some of us love something else or someone else. No, the world is on an entirely different path, the path that leads to death. We are following Jesus on the way of life. It is two irreconcilable differences and they come into direct conflict with each other. Thus, we should expect persecution and resistance. In the last uh, year and a half, I've had the privilege of hanging out some with the youth group, and not a whole lot, but some, and I was talking with one of our students uh, recently, and they were telling me, I don't have their permission to share this, so I won't tell their name, but they were telling me about um, how at their public school, they are facing persecution for their faith. The other students ridicule them, slander them, make fun of them, laugh at them, shut them down anytime they try to enter into the conversation because they're a Christian. They have a teacher who is teaching false things out of the Bible to show the Bible's the source of racism, the Bible's the source of evil, the Bible's the source of injustice, Christianity's a farce. Teaching this in a public school here, right here around us. And this Christian says, I don't believe that stuff. And then the other students make fun of them, laugh at them, revile them, persecute them, utter slanderous false things about them because of their faith. You know, when I was talking with this student, I just was like, wow. I am so impressed and have such respect that they're willing to stand on the truth of Christ even in the face of persecution as a teenager. That'd be hard for us to do as adults. We come into direct conflict with the value systems and the ways of the world, so 
what I think is that we should be surprised if we are not persecuted. That's really what it is. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be caught off guard when we are persecuted. We should be surprised if we're not persecuted. If we are not finding resistance in the world around us, then we're probably not living our faith the way that Jesus taught us to live in the Beatitudes. Now, does that mean that everyone who's not a Christian is a terrible, no good, awful person who's out to get you? It's us versus them? No, no. Does that mean that we should just all uh, huddle up in our holy huddle and, and, and hide out until Jesus comes back so we don't have to face the persecution of the world? No, no. When you see people who aren't yet Christians, they're not awful, horrible, evil, terrible, disgusting people that need to be wiped off the face of the earth because they're probably going to be out to get us. No, they are human beings made in the image of God. Jesus came and gave his life for them. You can think of them like sheep that have wandered away from the good shepherd and don't really know how to find their way back. And sometimes when you go to lead the sheep back to the good shepherd, you know, sheep can be a little stubborn. Sometimes they put their head down and butt you a little bit because they don't want to go the way you're going. This is how we see people who aren't yet Christians. They're not awful people that should be spit on and despised. They are human beings made in the image of God and Jesus himself died for them. And we were just like them before Christ found us. So we should go out into the world. We shouldn't withdraw from the world. Our relationship with God thrusts us into the thick of the world's pain where we show mercy, where we love, where we share the love of Christ with others. And along the way, we suffer and hurt. But it is in doing that that we share Christ's love with others. We should expect persecution when we follow Jesus because we're living right side up in an upside down world. The second question for the morning is, how do we respond? Okay, if, if persecution is a given, at some point we will face it, how should we respond when we suffer for Christ? What should we do when we face resistance for serving God? And here's the answer to that question. When we suffer for Christ, we should rejoice and be glad. And that is not easy to say, but it comes right out of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 12, Jesus said, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we face persecution and resistance, we, don't, we, we, we rejoice and be glad. We don't retaliate. We don't sulk. We don't wallow in self-pity. We don't paint a plastic smile on our face and pretend like everything's okay. We don't do that. But in the midst of the pain we turn our eyes to heaven and we say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We rejoice and we be glad when we suffer. Now, why do we do that? How can we do that? Well, Jesus gives us two reasons there in verse 12. First of all, we rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. See, when you suffer for Christ, God sees, God knows, and your reward is great in heaven. I once heard a pastor say, we may lose everything on earth, but we will inherit everything in heaven. All right, so we know that we can suffer and endure suffering now because our reward with the Father is great indeed, and it is an eternal inheritance that, that will never perish, spoil, or fade, that is being kept for us. So we rejoice because your reward is great in, in heaven. God sees it. Uh, Psalm 56, verse 8. 
says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God has kept a record of all of your suffering. He sees it. He knows it. He's with you through it. I know that sometimes when you're in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, you don't feel the presence of the shepherd with you, but he's there. He sees. He knows. He knows all the sleepless nights. He knows the tossings and turnings. He knows every tear that you've cried. He has every drop of every tear kept in a bottle, kept in a record. He knows it all, and your reward is great in heaven, and he is with you even in the darkest valley. So we rejoice when we suffer because God is with us and our reward is great in heaven. And secondly, we rejoice when we suffer because suffering is the badge of true discipleship. Look back at Matthew 5.12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And then the second reason, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, look, if you're facing persecution on account of me, you're in good company. All of God's prophets have faced persecution. Oh, this, is, this is the mark that you are truly following Christ. See, popularity and acceptance is the mark of the false prophet. Persecution is the mark of the true disciple of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer it was a pastor that, uh, in Germany during the Nazi uh, Germany era, and he ended up going to prison and was actually executed. Um, but he wrote this, these words, from prison. He said, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above the master. Following Christ means allegiance to the suffering of Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer in fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. It is the evidence that we belong to Christ. We are becoming like him. What did Jesus do? He suffered the cross for us. And becoming like him, we will share in his sufferings. My uh, sweet wife shared this verse with me recently, Philippians 3.10. That I may know him, meaning Christ, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, when we are becoming like Jesus, we are sharing in his sufferings. To know him and to know the power of his resurrection means sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. If we become like him in death, we will become like him in the resurrection. If we are sharing in his sufferings, we are sharing an experience with Christ. You know, there's a difference between uh, you and I could, go, could uh, go out for coffee and I could talk to you about trout fishing on some stream in western Wisconsin. And I could explain it all to you, and that would be great. Or we could go trout fishing on that stream and experience it together. And your knowledge of that event is going to change because you've experienced it together. And our relationship is going to be different because we have now shared an experience together. This is what the Apostle Paul is writing in Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul was writing this from a prison cell. And this is what he was saying. I want to share in the sufferings of Christ because I will be sharing an experience 
with Jesus and my relationship with him will change as a result. And if I share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, then I will know him more deeply and I will experience the power of his resurrection in my life. In his uh, book on the Beatitudes, Paul Lewis Metzger uh, talks about uh, he's a seminary professor, and he, and he shares a story about one of his students who was from Romania. Uh, Romania, at one time, was under the communist regime of the Soviet Union, and uh, since then, the, the communist regime fell, and Romania has opened up to the West. But this student was telling uh, Metzger about uh, Romania and Christian, Christianity in Romania before communism and after communism. And he said, before communism, nobody ever talked about salvation being free because everybody knew the cost. See, before uh, before uh, the, the communist regime fell, Christians faced severe persecution. You could be arrested, you could be beaten, you could be tortured, you could lose your job, you could have your home uh, taken from you, you could be thrown in prison, you could be executed, and many Christians were. They never knew when they gathered to worship if this would be their last time to worship as free people or if the police would come in and arrest them all. You just didn't know. Nobody ever talked about it being free. And then the communist regime fell, Romania opened up to the West, missionaries came in and they started preaching a gospel of free grace. Free grace, salvation is free, salvation is free. And he said it was a, and he uses this phrase and it's just such a powerful, he said it, it was the false gospel of consumerist Christianity. Salvation doesn't cost you anything. Following Jesus doesn't cost you anything. It's all free, it doesn't require anything. And he said the, the whole scope of Christianity in Romania changed from believers who were willing to suffer for Christ to believers who just wanted to come and consume some spiritual good or service and go home. And any resistance, any suffering, any struggle, any challenge, and they're walking away from their faith because they think, oh, this is just free. It's all just for me. I'm supposed to be pampered. But that's not true. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Salvation costs us ourselves. It's a transfer of ownership. I am not myself anymore. I belong to Christ. I don't have to pay anything for it, but I have to be willing to follow Jesus. See, there are two predominant ways by which we come to know God. Through his word and through suffering. That's really it. We come to know God through his word and through suffering. And so many of us have known him in his word. Many of us have known him through suffering. This is why we experience resistance to following Christ and this is how we respond. We rejoice, we're glad, our reward is great in heaven. It is the badge of true discipleship, the certificate of authentic faith. And so we rejoice. This morning, um, we're going to pray for one another in just a moment, but I, I want to close with a challenge. We've been having a challenge for each of these. Um, I would challenge you this week to pray for persecuted Christians around the world. 
There are two really good resources that you can find information on and specific people to pray for. One is Voice of the Martyrs. If you just go and Google Voice of the Martyrs, you'll find their website. Um, and they have lots of resources, a lot of free resources, a lot of information about Christians who are suffering, specific stories and people that you can pray for and what, they, what their needs are. The other one is the source I quoted earlier, Open Doors. Again, you can just, oh, I think it's opendoors.org. Um, Open Doors actually also has a, an app. And you can download, it's a free app. They will send you updates on Christians who are being persecuted, um, specific names and people and families that you can be praying for and ways that you can help. So I would encourage you this week to, to uh, pray together with your spouse, with your kids, if you're married, if you have kids, to pray with a close friend. Um, pray uh, for persecuted Christians around the world because not everybody enjoys the tremendous freedom that we have in the United States. None of us were scared to drive to church this morning because we wondered if the police would come and arrest us for singing. We weren't. We drove here freely. We were gathered together to worship God without fear. We're safe. But many, many, many Christians, over 340 million Christians around the world today do not have that freedom. And so we want to pray for them. We want to encourage them. Um, and I want to close our time this morning just by spending a few moments praying for one another. So we don't do this very often, but if you would uh, be able to circle up with a few people sitting um, in somewhat near by you and just share how you're doing, um, how we can be praying for one another. Uh, we all suffer. Um, pastors usually say you're either coming out of a season of suffering, you're in the middle of a season of suffering, or you're headed into a season of suffering, <laughs> right? And that's kind of dire. But uh, it's a little bit true. Life is hard. Suffering is part of it, especially suffering for Christ. And so we want to encourage one another and pray for one another as we suffer so that we suffer well. Um, so I would in uh, just invite you to take the last, we've got about 10 minutes in the service, just take the last 10 minutes, circle up, um, and just and pray for one another. Amen.